Um, let me just go ahead and pray over um, where we're heading, though, this morning as we get into the series. God, we just uh, thank you for our chance to be together this morning. And maybe, Lord, we come from different places in the valley, or we come even from different backgrounds, or, um, or God, from different circumstances. But the reality is, is that we all worship the same God. We worship you. And that you draw us together, and you do so through the medium of your word. And this morning, Lord, we want to, once again, set aside the circumstances or anything that would distract, and we want to pay attention to your word, which, in a sense, God, um, acts as a rudder for our lives. When our emotions get the best of us, when our circumstances push against us, when adversity seems to be the thing that we face the most, your word roots us and grounds us in your love. And so, Lord, we want more of that, and we want to discover more of you. And as we step into this next series, this Christmas series, uh, God, would you just deliver on the goods in our lives? In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Uh, so um, we're, we're talking about the age of the Messiah, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at really just two verses in Isaiah, and we're going to unpack and camp out on these two verses over the next four weeks. Um, but when it comes to the subject of Christmas itself, what is it that draws you in to the conversation? Now, for many, you probably are drawn into the conversation because of family tradition, uh, for many people, um, they just they attend, they attend church twice a year, once on Christmas, once on Easter. It's just part of the rhythm. It's just part of the tradition. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe you uh, are really in the conversation about Christmas every year because you're into prophecy. You're into the Bible. And, uh, and the story of Jesus is a story about prophecy fulfilled and and. You couldn't get more exciting than that, right? I mean, there's all of these statements that are made about the coming Messiah. And then we, in the Christmas season, sort of get in on that. The fulfillment of a promise that God has made on behalf of mankind. Uh, for some of us, the Christmas season draws us in because it's about presence. Like literally. Um, not just presence under the tree, but it's about the gift that we celebrate of Jesus Christ, who gives himself to us, to our families. And in our homes, we have this, this way of celebrating that gift. We have traditions that surround that gift. For many, we're interested in the conversation about Christmas because it's messy, because it's kind of like our lives. If you ever read the story in the Bible, what conclusion you often will come to is that the the human instruments, the individuals who are involved in the story are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. The genealogies told about Jesus report that he comes from um, really uh, a, a genealogy, a lineage that nobody should be proud of. Uh, the people who are actually a part of the story in the Gospels often encounter fear and darkness as opposed to the joy and the sense of celebration that we're called to experience at this time of the year. You think of the angel showing up, announcing great news of great joy, but everybody sort of falls back and 
We see the human side. It's a messy story. We wonder about it, and it draws you in. But there's also the other side of the story, the divine story. Maybe that's the part that you like the best about it. It's this idea that, that is presented in Matthew as we get right into the, the narrative about what happens 2,000 years ago in the hills of Bethlehem. You, you have this experience of not just a baby, but Matthew points out and seeks to prove that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the God-man. There's something human, but there is something divine about the story, and it draws us in. There may be a lot of different reasons why we are interested in this experience, but one of the reasons is because of what Matthew says as he identifies the nature of this God-man. It's a name that brings comfort to some and terror to others. But it's the name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 brings this to our attention. This child is called Emmanuel, God with us. It's an interesting name. It's actually a quotation. It's the first New Testament quotation out of the Old Testament that we discover in the Gospels. And it comes from Isaiah, which is the book that we're going to be in. It means to emphasize that God has entangled himself or means to entangle himself in his story within our lives and our stories. And it's more than just an announcement, Emmanuel, God with us. It's really a pronouncement. It's a public declaration that this baby that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next several weeks needs to be reckoned with, needs to be identified. Um, Everyone is placed on notice by this announcement. The Christ is here. Herod is placed on notice. The shepherds are placed on notice. The Pharisees will be placed on notice, and you and I will be placed on notice. The story has a way of drawing us in. But here's what we know. As Christians, what we believe in the story that we tell of great joy around our Christmas trees in our living rooms is a story of God blessing us. And it's a blessing, it's a blessing that is meant to be received. That's what we believe. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, and not just ourselves in our homes as Christians, but perhaps if you're kind of on the outside looking in, and you've looked at the Christmas story before, and you're just kind of wondering about it, if we were to be honest with ourselves, it's a story that on the surface can actually be a little bit underwhelming. Maybe you viewed it that way before. I remember pulling up to the Grand Canyon for the very first time with my family. We had uh, left Alaska and flown down to Chicago, and we were on a great trip around the, the lower 48 that took us all the way down you know, to Texas and then back up through the Grand Canyon, and ultimately we're going to end in Yellowstone National Park before flying back home. But the Grand Canyon was on the list, and it had been on the list for years in my life. It was the trip that my family wanted to take that we never could, and I wanted to give my family that opportunity. So as it was, we all got to see it at once for the same time. It wasn't like mom and dad were showing something that they had already experienced to the kids. 
This was an event where we were all going to perceive something brand new all at once. And you park in the parking lot and you come up over on the south edge over to, to the edge of this cliff and you look out and you peer and I'll never forget the feeling of my breath literally just taken away. It was so vast. It was so big. It was uncontainable. I got to confess, as we look back on the Christmas story, that over the years, familiarity has a way of breeding some form of contempt. In fact, it almost seems that the story itself no longer takes our breath away. That the fact of the matter is, is that over time it somehow grows more insignificant, more underwhelming, and, and, and for many, that's actually their experience. Far from taking your breath away, it seems manageable, containable. Maybe it's because we all put in our homes a nativity, and with our own hands, we structure the Christ exactly where we think he belongs. For others, it isn't underwhelming, it's just flat out unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like it was for some of the characters in the original story. Zechariah, for instance, a priest who should have known better, but when the angel shows up and says, by the way, you're going to have a son, his name's going to be John, and incidentally, he's going to pave the way for the Messiah, for, for the Christ. Zechariah is caught seemingly unaware that he somehow played a significant role, or like even the nation played a significant role, or that the times in which he lived had anything to do with God's ultimate story, somehow entangling itself in his story. And as a result, he almost missed the moment. He almost missed the Christ. He struck dumb as a result as sort of a punishment, but also as a sign and ultimately, he believes, along with his wife, and he does bear a child. But why is it so easy to miss Jesus? Why is it so easy to minimize this story? Well, I think the reason it can happen for you, like it could happen for Zechariah and for me, is because we often fail to perceive that we're in the middle of a grand story. See, Zechariah was actually in the middle of a story, but he'd failed to see how his daily activities intertwined with God's greater narrative. We can have the same problem. In fact, when we look back at the Christmas story and we think it is the highlight, like it is somehow the end game, we can fail, we can be detached and fail to see how our lives intersect with what God did 2,000 years ago. But the truth of the matter is just like Zechariah, we are in the messy middle of a much larger story that is unfolding and has been unfolding throughout history. So what I want to do today is I want to take us to that story and give us a bigger framework in an effort to launch us into this conversation that we're going to be in for Christmas time. And I want to take you to a time in Israel's journey when Israel was trapped in a state of unbelief. 
where, where they no longer felt connected to the God who had started their story. And as a result, they, as the prophets would say, were carrying out the desires of their own hearts rather than the desires of God's hearts as a nation, as a whole. In fact, you could probably, you could probably reduce their whole motive to this, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. It sort of characterized the nation when Isaiah steps onto the scene to write and address his concerns. But there was something else happening as well. There was this rigid skepticism that was emerging in the nation. It was this sense that it no longer mattered what we believed or how we behaved. God didn't really care. He wasn't going to judge us if we did wickedness. Neither was he going to bless us if we did what was right. It was a life lived completely divorced of any relationship with God. So God became more of a byword than a life-giving source to the nation. And so it's in this context that Isaiah begins to write. God actually is the one who calls Isaiah to write. He does so, he does so in the context of four kings. At the end of Uzziah's reign, Isaiah hears a word from the Lord. And in the course of four kings, he writes and records what God tells him. But here's the irony. When you have a nation that's moving in the wrong direction, we assume somehow, we assume that what you really want to address is the king. If you address the king, then somehow it will, it will replenish or renew the nation. But what's conspicuously absent after the first verse of chapter one is any mention of the kings of Israel that were reigning during the time that Isaiah was writing. What you do see addressed are the leaders of Israel. It's fascinating and it's interesting, but it's as if to suggest the nation of the, as a whole was totally bankrupt. That the leaders had led the people down a black hole, a path. So Isaiah prefers the term Jacob, for instance, to describe Israel. Jacob, of course, speaking of the whole nation. It was a name that represented the whole nation. And the whole nation was broken. And it's here that God calls Isaiah to speak to this nation. And his message is simple. It's about a past order. Something had passed by that God wanted. God had set a foundation that he wanted Israel to revisit. But they had left. They had been the ones who changed course. And Isaiah essentially is almost suggesting that they could throw the grappling hooks backwards to an older time, to a past day, and they could sink their teeth into a sturdy and durable foundation once more. If only they would repent. The problem was, and Isaiah prophesied this, the people wouldn't repent. Skepticism had crept in to such a, to such a degree that it was no longer possible for them to repent. And so Isaiah will actually prophesy their doom, their eventual captivity. This is the condition we find the nation in. They had grown self-sufficient, affluent, 
wise in their own eyes. They were progressives. They weren't seeking the past. They were seeking a future all on their own. And so it's in that context that Isaiah wants to address the nation. And he does so by saying that God is going to do some things in the nation to solve the problem. God is going to break through the bureaucracy of Israel, and he's going to bring justice and righteousness back to the nation because it needs it so dearly. And he, we discover this idea in Isaiah chapter 9, where a familiar passage resurfaces for us. And it's Isaiah chapter 9, picking up, if you're following along, either on the screen or in your own Bible, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For a child will be born for us. Something's going to happen for the nation. A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. This is really a statement that, that, that goes all the way back to a promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham, through you and in you, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. God, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and one from among you will rise to prominence, and all nations will be blessed. This is added clarity. This is the idea that how is that blessing going to transpire? It's going to transpire, Isaiah says, through a particular ruler. The seed, we discover, is a ruler. The governments will be on his shoulders. And then what Isaiah does is he gives us four names. Now, we're going to be revisiting these over the next four weeks, but I want to just give you a, a quick understanding of the four names that Isaiah mentions that characterize the nature of this ruler who uh, holds power in the governments over the world. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. This was a name that would have brought comfort to the original hearers. In other words, um, this, this individual is going to be completely unlike the current shepherds that are guiding you that have no wisdom and have lead, led you down the wrong path. Instead, I am going to supply for you, through the Messiah, I'm going to supply for you a wonderful counselor. Reminds us of the story of Jesus, doesn't it? That when he comes on the scene, one of the things that he's identified is as somebody who has wisdom and counsel that is filled with real authority. The idea speaks to authority. In fact, the leaders of the day in Israel said, the scribes said of Jesus, he speaks not as the Pharisees, he speaks as one who has authority. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to speak the truth. He's going to unpack the lies. He's going to untwist what has been bent. He's going to call evil evil, and he's going to call out the good. He will be a wonderful counselor. We go on to see the second name, and the second name was meant to inspire awe. He will be mighty God. This was written in a time when there was a lot of oppressors and oppressed individuals, that the leaders were actually oppressing the people through their bad leadership, Jew against Jew. 
And so this would have, this would have been that sense that, that there will be there will be this individual, the seed of Abraham who will arise, and he will be mighty to overcome. He will overrule the plans of man. The leaders that suppress and oppress the tr- you, suppress the truth and oppress the people, that, that the mighty God will be on display in this moment through this individual. He will be awesome in power. There won't be anything that can hinder him. He will tip the scales in the direction that he sees fit. He's mighty God. He's almighty God. And then we get something unexpected in one of the names that's mentioned. The third name that is mentioned of this individual is that he's the eternal father. Now, we all know, as we look at this, that we're talking about Jesus, who is God the Son. So many people have looked at this through the years and said, how is it that God the Son is also called God the Father here? And the answer to that question is actually quite simple. In American history, we hearken back to a time when the progenitors of the American system wrote it down for us and birthed something brand new. And we call the men who were involved in that process the founding fathers. Not because they were actually somehow our fathers, but because they were the progenitors of something brand new. They brought in something new. They had a paternal instinct. They brought life and breath to American ideology. They actualized the ideas, the new ideas that birthed a brand new nation. There's a sense here in which the providence of God will be on display through his son. And what emerges is this idea that that what God does through his son will, will be paternal in nature. He will provide and he will direct like an eternal father. He's also then finally called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is a little offsetting. I mean, at first, it seems like it would bring comfort. But he's not a peacekeeper here. He's a peacemaker. If you remember in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus talks about blessed are not the peacekeepers, who are always seeking comfort and status quo opportunity, but blessed are the peacemakers. It's actually a different idea altogether. In fact, if we were to go further into Bible prophecy, we would find that the way peace is made is actually through a sword. Jesus, it's said, didn't come to bring peace but a sword. He divides the truth right from wrong. What he actually brings and what a peacemaker brings is reconciliation with God. And he does so in oftentimes very abrupt, warlike sort of ways. You follow Jesus through the gospels, one thing you'll discover is he's not the least bit afraid of making you uncomfortable. He's not the least bit afraid of going up to the Pharisees and picking a fight. The reason is is because he sets himself at odds with the darkness. 
and he creates peace from God's perspective. Peace has that idea of shalom. God's rule in your life, in my life, or in society is what peace is in the Bible. In other words, all of these titles speak to the fact that a great ruler is coming. He will be mighty God, wonderful counselor, eternal father, and he will bring the prince of peace. Now here's what's interesting. What's interesting is what isn't said. He won't be a great orator or a philanthropist. He's not like an Elon Musk who, because of his great wealth, um, decides to become a diplomat overnight and solve the world's problems. Something else is mentioned, um, and it reveals something essential about the Messiah. And it's this, is that the Messiah is not just a savior, but he is also a sovereign. That's the emphasis in Isaiah, that we have a sovereign ruler. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a priest. He's actually a king. And as a result, it changes our discussion about him. And it changes our understanding of what's happening in the manger. We're not just looking at a little child. In fact, we're looking at a great ruler. A ruler characterized by his reign, his sovereignty over history, over nations. And that changes the discussion because now it isn't just about receiving him It's about obeying him, because that's what you do with the ruler. And this is the problem, isn't it? In fact, this is the tension and maybe our point of contact with the story. You see, all of us love a baby, but we despise rulers. What are we going to do with that? Really is the question and the tension that we all face every day single Christmas. We don't like rulers, and we know it. Just look at the second terms of presidents. You don't even have to wait till the second term sometimes. Even two years into a presidency, you know, all the presidents ride the wave of popularity, but two years in, if they haven't been able to execute what happens, we flip the House and the Congress against them, and we call them lame duck presidents. I mean, it doesn't take long, does it? We're not very good at obeying rulers. In fact, I think we're proud of it. But Judas also had that problem, didn't he? You know, if I reflected on the life of Judas, I think Judas believed a lot of things about Jesus. He had an accurate theology, an accurate understanding of many, many aspects of Jesus. I don't think, for instance, Judas had any problem with Jesus' generosity. I don't think Judas had any problem with Jesus' miracles. I don't think Judas had any problem with the lifestyle that Jesus uh, lived. I mean, think of all the sacrifice that Judas made just to be attached to Jesus. The guy was was trusted, and he, he gave a lot just to be with Jesus. But at the end of the day, the problem with Jesus is that he wanted to rule Judas. And Judas said, no. In fact, Judas serves sort of as a signal for the nation, doesn't he? What we read about 
is that when Messiah comes, just like Judas, the Jews miss their king. And that's what's happening in Isaiah. If you read the rest of the book of Isaiah, what you'll discover is that the nation misses the mark. That, that Isaiah prophesies and he tells us this great news about this coming deliverer, this coming world ruler, but has a way of falling on deaf ears. The nation doesn't come to its senses. It doesn't repent. And there's a consequence associated with unbelief. At first, at first it was just spiritual in nature, sort of a, a spiritual blindness summed up by skepticism. But the consequence ultimately leads to a, a spiritual captivity, which in turn leads to a physical captivity. Israel becomes routed by their enemies and goes into slavery. But what I love about this story is that's not the image that the prophet Isaiah wants us to end with. The image that the prophet Isaiah wants us to end with is this, and it's in verse 7. It says, the dominion will be vast. So he gives us the names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, and he says this, the dominion will be vast. The rule of this coming king will be Bigger than the Grand Canyon. It will be vast. It will be awe-inspiring. And listen, its prosperity will never end. This king will bring prosperity like has never been known on the face of the earth before. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom. You can't allegorize or spiritualize this specifically because of the context that it's placed in. Everybody in that idea, in the room, who heard this would have thought, there is a throne. It's the throne of David. We can see it. It sits right there. That's the throne of David. Messiah will rule from that throne. In a city, in Jerusalem. And that Messiah, according to this, will rule a vast empire. Prosperity will never end, reign on the throne over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. This is actually the image that Isaiah wants to leave his people with and leave you and me with. An image of this king who has incredible names. These names all go to emphasize how he will rule and ultimately he will rule in such a way he will rule in such a way that, that the nations will bless his name because he will rule in righteousness and justice. They will literally look at his deeds and say, that's righteous. That's so just. And they'll know that it's completely different than the leaders that once led them. A new ruler is coming. But here's what I want you to take away from this. It's this idea that Messiah blesses everything he rules. Did you hear it? He will bring prosperity and he will establish and he will sustain and he will do so in righteousness and justice. He will set the record straight. He will set things right. He will be truly a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, 
who stops oppression. He will truly be the Prince of Peace and the Eternal Father when he rules. He will enrich. He will bring abundance like the world has never known. He will improve our lives and the lives of everybody who is a part of that future kingdom. Here's what this means. Christ's rule is for us. See, a lot of us have a problem with the ruler because we don't trust the ruler. But the image that we're given from the Bible is of a ruler who rules perfectly. And his rule isn't for himself. His rule is for you. It's to improve your life. It's to bring abundance into your life, into your family, into your living room. And as a result, even his enemies will celebrate. But there's a warning here as well. It's at the end of the verse. And the warning says this, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Here's why I think that's a warning. Throughout Christian history, let alone world history, various movements have been birthed under the false philosophy that somehow we can bring in the kingdom, that somehow we can bring in utopia, that somehow we can, we can make righteousness and we can make everything that's prophesied about Messiah come true and be realized in our lifetime. What's fascinating about this is it's written to a people who will not repent and are judged as a result. It's like repentance, the door to repentance has already swung shut. It's not going to happen. The prophet knows that. And yet these words are spoken. It's as if to say, guys, even your unbelief won't get in the way of God bringing his kingdom because you don't have any part in it. It's going to happen because the zeal of the Lord will make it happen. Because God made a promise to Abraham, and so it's going to happen. Not even your faithlessness can cause him to be unfaithful to the promise that he made to you as a nation. In reverse, there's nothing you can do to bring it in. It's going to happen in his good time, his good pleasure. Because we're in the middle of the story. And until the story is done, and he determines the time in which the story is accomplished, until the story is done, we are a part of the middle of this great narrative. The king is coming. When we look back 2,000 years ago, when we look back to the birth of a savior, it prompts us to look forward to the coming of a king. He's not just a savior. He's not just meant to be a blessing. He's a ruler. He was a king. He's sovereign. There's a realm, and he's coming to set up his throne and a dominion. And all those who celebrate him can be a part of that coming kingdom. But here's the other thing that this statement means to me. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. It means that God has always meant that his story intersects with your story. That he's always, no matter where you find yourself in history, he is always present. 
He is working something out that is not fully accomplished. See, the Christmas story is not the climax of Scripture. And neither is the cross. It's the kingdom. And it's coming. It's coming. And in the meantime, in the messy middle, is where we find ourselves. And God is calling us this season to pay attention, to sit up straight, to lean in, and to discover something that has already happened in the past, a foundation that has already been laid, that if we were to sink our grappling hooks into and pull it into today, would actually enable us to see more and to live better. What's interesting is that God wants to transform us through this story. And so he argues, I think, from the greater to the lesser. There will be a king who will rule the world. And if there's a king who will rule the world, certainly he can save you in the present. Certainly he can save you in the present. He's coming. And we were meant to be drawn in to this story. So for the next four weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be drawn into this story. My prayer for you is that you will rediscover the joy and the awe as you take a look at the vastness of the dominion of the kingdom that is coming. We're going to transition now to communion and... Um, I'm going to invite the worship team up, and uh, as they come up, I'm going to lead us in some prayer, and then as they lead us in song, uh, feel free. We have elements on my left, on my right. Come grab those elements and return to your seats, and, uh, and then uh, uh, we will be led in communion. But let me go ahead and ask you to stand. I'm just going to pray for you now um, as we prepare our hearts. God, thank you for your word, but Lord, thank you for giving us yourself. God, you, you are the great God. You are the mighty king, and we want to worship you. And you gave us one way to do that. When you sat with your disciples and you explained to them that you weren't going to be the kind of king that they anticipated, who literally was sitting on a throne in Jerusalem with them. But for a meantime, for a while, in the middle of the story, you were going to be a king in exile that the time for you coming to your throne was not yet because, because you wanted to grow your kingdom and you wanted us to learn how to be faithful behind enemy lines. So here we are 2,000 years later, but we believe the same thing that those disciples believed, same thing that you taught them, that in some fashion, in some way, you're actually here in the room with us. And as a God who keeps his covenants and keeps his promises, we anticipate a future kingdom coming, but we realize that today, through communion, we can actually be partakers of the kingdom and partakers of the king. You said, this is my flesh, this is my blood. What you meant by that is that you could be Emmanuel, you could be God with us in a moment through faith, through simply believing the truth that you laid down for us to believe. 
So in this process, in this table, we call the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, we acknowledge once more. We acknowledge that you're in the room with us. We acknowledge that your story was always meant to intersect with our story. We acknowledge that you're not just a savior, but you are a king who will come to reign. We acknowledge and declare our faithfulness to you, to your covenant, shed in your blood. We do that now in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.